This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, filmmaker Nicholas Meyer on The Day After. This was not a movie about politicians or policy. This was not a movie about the military. This is a movie about people like us who are just doing their thing. But what happens when the missiles go off? The problem with nuclear weapons is that they can't be used. Once you start using them, the other guy starts using them, and then there's nothing left. I was not a fan of Ronald Reagan. I initially had the fantasy that, you know, my movie would help to unseat him. But it did something weirder than that. It changed his mind about a winnable nuclear war. Nicholas Meyer, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for coming on our show. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So I asked you on the podcast today uh, to talk about not the most uplifting of subjects, uh, but one that is very much top of mind in the news again, and that is nuclear war. Um, The specter of that horrific conflict, uh, which I think so many people had put in the back of their minds at the end of the Cold War, is now raising once again as we watch the war that's unfolding in Ukraine, where Vladimir Putin has raised the possibility of using nuclear weapons, uh, which, of course, makes us imagine the awful scenarios in which things could get very out of hand uh, and we could see potentially the use of a weapon or even a nuclear war between Russia and the United States. You have a unique perspective on this question and what it would look like if that horrible event ever happened, because you were the director of the film The Day After, which I think probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast will know that movie. But just to refresh for people who don't, uh, this was a film that aired On ABC, on network television, which is very important to the story, in 1983, uh, that focused on uh, the town of Lawrence, Kansas, and in and around Kansas of Kansas City, follows the lives of a number of characters in the events leading up to, and importantly, the aftermath of a full nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, I think it's safe to say this was a national event. When this movie was aired, we can talk about that. I vividly remember seeing it. It had a profound effect on me, as I know it did hundreds of millions of people, certainly who watched it, um, and arguably changed or the course of history. And we can get into all that, too. But your perspective on this is so keen because you spent a lot of time imagining what a nuclear war might look like. And that's why I wanted you to come on. Um, So I want to start with just... Talk about where you were in your filmmaking career when you were approached to direct this movie. And what was your reaction when it was pitched to you as, do you want to make a movie about a nuclear war? Well, I think we should put this in in the slight bit of context. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is that since 1945, the human race has been confronted by Uh, a unique potential, uh, which was to destroy itself that had never been available before. The world changed when atom bombs were dropped and we saw what they could do. And since that time, we have been confronted by this unique, terrible possibility. Ironically, 
and importantly, the possibility is so terrifying that nobody can bear to think about it. And that includes yours truly. Yeah. So in the words of one of the George Bushes, we go shopping. <laughs> we uh, live with a Damoclean sword hanging over our heads. And we prefer not to think about it. Uh, nuclear accidents, and there have been nuclear accidents, are hushed up. We don't want to think about it. And when people make movies or publish books about this possibility, whether we're talking about Richard Rhodes and the making of the atomic bomb, or we're talking about movies like On the Beach, um, or Jonathan Shell, The Fate of the Earth, the only people who reads them read them are, are is that you know small demographic slice that's ready to put their heads in ovens any minute. Um, they're preaching to the choir. They're, it's a kind of a masochistic enterprise to watch this stuff, and understandably, most people don't. They stay away from it. So that's and that was my background. I sure wasn't eager to see on the beach. And when I was approached to direct the day after, I was, I believe, the third director to be approached. I was a young man. I had written the number one best-selling novel in the United States, The 7% Solution. I had directed Time After Time, which I'd also written, and that was a hit. And then I did Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and that was a hit. And who needed to immerse oneself in a TV movie, which is what it was, yeah. about nuclear war? And a TV movie not being the most prestigious kind of idea. At the, no, at the time. no, in those days. If not you, like it is now. <laughs> If you directed features, you didn't segue backward into doing television. Right. That um, it was considered, you know, a step down. As it happens, this is the long-winded answer, which seems to be the only kind I'm capable of. I was being psychoanalyzed at the time I was lying on the couch, and when you're lying on the couch, you do all the heavy lifting. The analyst doesn't say anything. He may play back what you've said, but he doesn't volunteer stuff. So there I am lying on the couch and trying to rationalize my way out of directing this movie. And my shrink, surprisingly, opens his mouth and says, well, I think this is where we find out who you really are. And then I knew I was going to have to do the movie. What What about that statement made you think, okay, now I have to do this? Because did you think that if I make this movie, I'm going to find out something profound about myself? No, I saw it as a moral obligation and a test of my character and what I profess to stand for, which is peace. I'm not a warlike person except in stories. I was against the Vietnam War. I marched against it. I protested against it. I even spent a night in jail against it. So it, it was about whether I was going to just sort of coast on my however brief popularity or brief celebrity um, 
and have a good time. There was was a town filled with beautiful women. Uh, Or was I going to, in a way, put my money where my mouth was? I think this is where we find out who you really are. It was a devastating thing to say to somebody. And certainly, for a man who didn't talk, it, it, it hit me like a wall of falling bricks or something. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you have to look at yourself in the mirror every morning when you shave. How, how's that going to feel? So I went and did it. So when you read the script, I mean, did you have you must have had a sense then that this could be an important film? Like if you're contemplating this as I mean, I had a different sense. My, I had a totally different sense. I said, this will never get on the air. <laughs> this is I, I said, I I have seen network television, you know, back in the 1980s or the 70s or whatever. And they do the flying nun or or, or something but you know, it. it it, it, it's all the purpose of network television was simply to sell advertising. Um, and it, it, was, it was to infantilize, with some exceptions, obviously. And ABC had done Roots. Mm, right, sure. Brandon Stoddard, who was the head of ABC Circle Films, had had enormous success with Roots. And he was looking for a follow-up. And he saw the China syndrome with Michael Douglas and Jack Lemmon and Jane Fonda. And um, rather intriguingly, in that story, which is about a mishap at a nuclear reactor, uh, somebody says in the course of the film, gee, if things go wrong here, we could lose an area the size of Pennsylvania. And as it happened, that was when the Three Mile Island nuclear reactor in Pennsylvania uh, had a meltdown, had a nuclear accident. So the, that movie became very timely. And this whole nuclear Pandora's box began to be sort of pried open in everybody's consciousness. Because the rest of the time, we forget or had forgotten or chose to forget that there were enough nuclear missiles in the world at the time to kill every man, woman, and child on planet Earth 54 times over. Um, So he thought, you know, we're sort of looking at event television. I don't think Brandon Stoddard had any idea the can of worms that he was opening at corporate ABC. They all hated this project with a passion. They knew way in advance of anybody else that nobody was going to sponsor such a movie. And indeed, nobody did, except I think Oroville Redenbacher popcorn. And so I read the script, which was a two-night event. And I should, for those of your listeners or watchers who don't know, this was not a movie about politicians or policy. This was not a movie about the military. 
this is a movie about people like us who are just doing their thing in my case, making movies, but it could be teaching school. It could be uh, polishing shoes. It didn't matter. But what happens when the missiles go off? And so I thought, this is never going to get made. And by the way, it, it's, it seemed padded. The, the script seemed two nights. It seemed too long. I thought, who is going to tune in for night two of Armageddon. Right, yeah, it's one is bad enough. <laughs> yeah. You know, I thought, uh, and I I suggested to an executive at ABC that maybe, you know, there was some flab on this script and we could trim it to one night and get folks right between the eyes. And uh, he said to me, you don't understand the economics of television we don't expect to make any money on this, but there is a limit to how much we can afford to lose. And the hour that you propose to slice out, which would be 30 minutes a night, uh, in order to make it a two instead of three hour event, um, represents 30 minutes of advertising on each of those nights. What he had not anticipated and nobody did except maybe me, was that there wasn't gonna be any sponsors. And once that became clear, we cut the movie down to one night. But meanwhile, I had gone out and shot, filmed the whole three hours of it. Right, right. And one of the things that's impressive about the movie is there there are a lot of faces in the movie that you recognize now. I mean, like Steve Gutenberg is in it, John Lithgow. There's a number of actors. You know, Jason Robards was a big star at the time. But this wasn't a movie that was packed with really recognizable actors. And, and, and those people I even mentioned were not as big as they eventually became. So was that a choice? I mean, did you want to make a movie that was, I mean, a big movie, but that didn't have a bunch of stars in it? Would that make it less relatable? Uh, yes, is the short answer. When you see movies like Earthquake with Charlton Heston and Ava Gardner, and when you see, um, you know, movies where New York gets swamped by tidal waves, uh, then disaster becomes fun. It becomes kind of cool to see what special effects can now do. Um, but I didn't want to make a good movie. I wanted to make something a little different because I knew if I made a good movie, people would talk about how good the movie was and they wouldn't talk about the subject, which we are all frantic not to discuss, not to think about. I didn't want to make a movie where someone said, wow, did you see the cinematography in that? Yeah. And wasn't, you know, Brad Pitt incredible? I didn't know he could, I didn't want any of that. Right. I didn't, you know, how about that music? I can't get that theme song out of my, I didn't want that. I wanted to make a public service announcement. Remember that only you can prevent forest fires. If you have a nuclear war, this is what it's going to be like on a good day, on a good day. Mm -hmm. And to that, so I didn't want big stars because then we'd be looking at the big stars. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think that, you know, it's interesting watching it now because there are recognizable faces in it. 
Um, I don't think that detracts from it. At the time, though, I mean, it 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 had a kind of it didn't look like a normal movie of the week. I mean, normal movies of the week kind of look very thrown together and they often did have TV actors in it. And it kind of, you know, you're kind of zipping through the plot. This movie is it, it's bordering on a documentary at some points because it's so day in the life of these characters. I mean, the first for people who haven't seen it, the first good hour of the film is establishing the lives of the characters uh, in this town in Kansas. Ordinary. Ordinary. I mean, to other ordinary. people, boring lives. It's not boring if you're the person who's about to get married. It's not boring if, you know, if, if your daughter is going to art school. But to to other people, it, it, it's, it's like, you know, getting those Christmas day newsletters yeah. that we send each other, you know, yes. we fixed the plumbing. Um, yes. So yeah, that was the whole, the whole point, except running in a, in a, in an, an increasing hum of volume mm -hmm. are these scattered news reports of some kind of confrontation going on in Europe mm -hmm. far away, but the broadcasters keep, sort of popping up on people's TVs or in newspaper headlines. And, and most people are ignoring them, which is what most people do, mm -hmm. except not today so much. But what's also so effective about that, and actually with this, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to ask you about it, is there is the sense that this thing that is happening in Europe is very confusing. And it's never even clear in the plot what exactly is at issue here. Like the inciting event is that uh, East Germany decides to blockade West Berlin and then things escalate from there. But it's never entirely clear why they did that. It's not even necessarily clear, like who started it, quote unquote. And the well, it's very important are, that it's not clear who started. We, we were right. not. Yeah. So we talk about that. Yeah. It was absolutely crucial to myself and to the network is that we were not making certainly not in any conventional sense something that could be construed as propaganda right uh whether it was anti-soviet or anti-american or pro whatever we didn't want to do any of that because if we're the people in the story they will never know what happened when they get nuked They'll never know it. It'll just be one minute you're here, the next minute you're gone, and you won't know why. And at the very beginning of making the movie, the Department of Defense offered to cooperate and lend us planes and shit. And we said, and they said, we have, but we have one condition. You have to show that the Soviets started the war. Oh, wow. And we told him to take a hike. Yeah. How did you get some of the footage that is of the military in the movie? I mean, there are these amazing scenes where you're on board the strategic air commander's plane, and it looks like documentary footage, actually, where and they're kind of running through getting yeah, ready to it is documentary footage. It, 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 it's footage that exists. It's on the record. Anybody can get it. It's amazingly effective because it's like the tension just starts mounting and they're actual military officers turning the keys to the missile silos. And you kind of have this feeling of, oh, my God, this machine has started and it's never going to no one can stop it. 
the th uh, actually, one of the things I, I was able to do was I went into one of the missile silos at Vandenberg mm. uh, Air Force Base. I think that's where it was. And we were allowed to go down there and take a look around. And basically, way, way underground. And by the way, as far as I know, to this day, all these systems run on floppies. Floppy disks. Yeah, floppy disks. There's no way to upgrade any of this. So think about that one, mm. uh, let alone, you know, spare parts or anything. When you get down there, there are two soldiers sitting down there at opposite ends of the room. In other words, they can't reach each other. And they both have to turn keys simultaneously in order to obey a launch order. Both keys have to be turned. And when I was down there, both men had sidearms. Mm. In other words, and I, this is where I kind of get lost in this sort of Kafka-esque absurdity. If one soldier was refusing to turn his key, the other soldier could presumably pull a gun on him. Mm -hmm. But it's unclear what good that would do, because if you shoot the guy who's refusing to turn the key, you can't, from your key, reach his key anyway. Yeah, that so does seem like a. <laughs> so what's what's the point? You know. Yeah. There's actually that you're reminding me. There's a scene uh, in the movie War Games, which came out probably around the same time as as your film, in which the opening scene is that, and you don't realize it's a drill. But uh, you know, the guy uh, uh, basically is refusing to turn the key, and the other one pulls a gun on him. And, it, and I, like you, I mean, I forgot that scene. It's a terrific movie. Yeah, and people watch it, and they're like, "What the hell are you going to shoot this guy dead in a missile silo?" And I mean, it, it speaks to this sort of the um the self-destructive theme that we're talking about here and, and it so permeates the film um, well there's a there's after. a name for it actually which your listeners may already know which is called mad yep. mad mutually assured destruction and the the reason that the, the problem with nuclear weapons is that they can't be used because they're so terrible a that there won't be anything left. And B, once you start using them, the other guy starts using them, and then there's nothing left. Right. And that was something that I remember too. I mean, I was, I've told you this before, but we, we, when I was asking you to come on the show, I was seven when I saw the film. And, and you said, Your I think- parents Kirk should be in jail. <laughs> they did watch it with me. And uh, it's, it's actually, it's it's a useful thing to remind people of that, you know, people did sit at home as families and watch this film because it was so highly anticipated and everybody knew it was going to be a big deal. Everybody understood that it was going to be very graphic. Um, so what was that like as you're getting ready to air the movie? Like, how were you anticipating the reception of this? Did you think it was going to be um, something that people would stop and watch? Did you, were you nervous about that? Like, what were you thinking as this thing went to air? Well, in the run-up, in the months when the film was being edited, um, there was a frantic 
movement on the part of, you know, today we would, you know, I don't know what you would call them, conservatives or what used to be the Republican Party, um, William Buckley and Phyllis Schlafly running up and down the country on every talk show and newscast uh, saying that this movie was uh, pro-Soviet and that it was bad for America and, and that it shouldn't be allowed to air. It was the equivalent of being banned in Boston, which used to be good for book sales because, mm. you know, once you start yelling up and down, don't read this book, then everybody wants to read the book. Um, so the country was being really roiled up. It made for great press. You could sell newspapers, you know, mm. ab about this controversy. I had the New York Post, as I recall, on its editorial page referred to me as a traitor. Oh, jeez. Uh, why is Nicholas Meyer doing Yuri Andropov's work for him? Oh, wow. Yuri Andropov being the then Soviet premier. Why was I was was I working for him? He never gave me a dime just for the record. Um, <laughs> and anyway, so so at this point, ABC, which had already, you know, lost, dropped a bundle of money on this movie. And all the sponsors had gone. General Foods, General Motors, General Mills, all the generals headed for the hills <laughs> and leaving, you know, Orville Redenbacher and um, I think Commodore Computers. Okay. I think they were the only people. And so basically, other than the first 20 minutes of the movie, I don't, there were no ads. A movie on network television with no ads. And so many disclaimers before the movie went on the air from people saying, you know, don't watch this movie. The, the ABC takes no responsibility and, um, you know, hide your kids in a closet. And, you know, all these disclaimers that preceded this movie um, that I didn't think anybody was going to watch it. And in fact, the night it aired, I was watching the movie with the woman who was to become my wife and we were sitting and I said to her at one point, if I didn't make this movie, would, would you be sitting through it? Would I be, would I be sitting through it? And I wasn't sure what the answer was um, or I didn't like to think what the answer was. So it didn't occur to me that anybody was watching it. And the next morning when I learned that a hundred million people had watched this movie in one night, making it the most watched movie ever made for television, a record which will incidentally never be surpassed because there's just too many channels. Um, I was in complete shock. I was, and so was ABC, so was everybody in complete shock. And, you know, I should add in the same breath that there are other television movies about nuclear war that are much more horrifying. A British film called Threads, Lynn Littman's uh, movie Testament, um, the Peter Watkin War Game, uh, th that are much more terrifying. But I had to make my movie not too terrifying or people would reach for the clicker. Uh, as And so, 
we did pull punches. And by the way, the network pulled punches. They, the things that were in the movie were cut out of the movie because they were deemed to be too gory or too upsetting. Nonetheless, 100 million people. So you wake up the next day, you realize 100 million people have seen this film. Um, how Talk about how the reaction started rippling through because – you know, it, it, it's a movie like that doesn't just happen and everyone sees it and they kind of go back to their normal life, right? I mean, a conversation starts because of this film. In fact, Ted Koppel hosted a national town hall event on ABC following the movie. So what were the days, what was it like the day after and the days after the day after? Well, there are a couple of uh, parts to answer this question. The first thing was that I learned quite by accident that a childhood friend of mine whom I, with whom I had not been in touch in many years, who worked for the State Department, got a call to come watch a movie. This is before the movie aired. This is before the, before the broadcast, some, some weeks or something, uh, to come watch the the movie the day after a tv movie with the joint chiefs oh wow they were going to screen this movie with the joint chiefs and in the pentagon and david gergen who was president reagan's uh, then white house press secretary had convened this meeting and this screening president reagan had not yet seen the film but certainly the whole country was working itself into a lather about it without having seen it. And so they ran the movie with my friend Steve sitting there. And he later said, Nikki, I had no idea you directed this movie. Imagine my surprise. <laughs> and when the, when the movie was over and these guys were all sitting there like they were flattened. And that's Steve describing what was going on. David Gergen said, now the president wants to know what we're going to do about this movie. And it was at that time that the decision was made in that room to put someone from the administration, from the government, on TV directly after the movie to chill the nation. And they put on the then Secretary of State, George Schultz. And Ted Koppel said to him, Mr. Secretary, is this the way it's going to be? Mm. No, Ted, said Mr. Schultz, Secretary Schultz. This is not the way it's going to be. And then there was followed by a, this ABC. I, I always call it Nightline, but I think it had another name mm -hmm. where William Buckley and Henry Kissinger and Carl Sagan and Elie Wiesel um, and some other big guys uh, were all um, having a conversation about the movie and about the topic of the movie. And Henry Kissinger in that discussion said, I don't think by scaring ourselves to death is a way to make nuclear policy. And I remember yelling back at the TV, I think it's exactly the way to make nuclear policy. Um, I, you know, initially had the fantasy 
I was not a fan of Ronald Reagan, um, that, you know, my movie would help to unseat him. That simply by showing what a nuclear war would be, uh, I would convince, you know, people, because Ronald Reagan came to power believing in a winnable nuclear war. And, but it, it turns out, and this is again, another long-winded answer that it did something weirder than that. It changed his mind about a winnable nuclear war. I don't know if it's because the president was a former Hollywood actor, B movie star, um, or, or whether it was simply that showing people images of something that they could not bring themselves or wouldn't be able to imagine was horrifying enough. Just, you know, here's how it works. The missiles come out of the ground, they shoot through the sky, and they come land and explode where you live. And the day after the day after was broadcast the morning after if you like the press went running around with their microphones and cameras and notepads saying to people did this movie change your mind about nuclear war one way or the other and then came rather gleefully as i thought back to me to say according to our morning after survey your movie didn't change anybody's mind what do you have to say to that? And I did the best I could. I said, number one, I don't think people change their minds overnight. Number two, I don't think they'd admit it to you if they did. Number three, I'm not sure people know what they think about a lot of things anyway. We may say what we'd like other people to think we think. We may say what we think sounds cool or politically correct. Um, but what we really think, you know, until the gun is at your head and somebody's about to blow it off, are you going to answer accurately? I won't say truthfully, accurately. Um, <clears throat> so I sort of discounted or rationalized um with or without you know good logic uh why people said their minds weren't changed or claimed that their minds weren't changed but ronald reagan's mind was changed he talks about it in his memoir where he talks about his diary entry after he saw the movie his official biographer edmund morris who wrote his biography, Dutch, I think in the book records his reaction. But I worked with uh, Ed Morris writing a my screenplay for his book, The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt. And in a conversation with me, he told me that he had spent three years living in the White House and basically privy to much of what was going on. And he said the only time he ever saw Ronald Reagan lose his cool, be seriously upset, was after he saw the day after when he finally saw the movie. And he said he, he went into a kind of a tailspin, a real depression. And this was not a guy who was 
subject to depression. And eventually, and I think it was a number of years later, he wound up sitting down with Premier Gorbachev in Reykjavik, Iceland, and signing the Intermediate Missile Range uh, Weapons Treaty. And he was going to sign off a lot more. He was going to get rid of nuclear weapons, except that he didn't want to give up Star Wars, his SDI right. Strategic Defense Initiative, which we all know has worked so well. Um, and um, so the movie did change one person's mind at least. And a pretty important person. I mean, this is, you know, I, I think that, that the historical record is pretty clear that this makes him think differently about the nature of war. And, you know, and then when he has Gorbachev, he has a partner who is willing to negotiate. And and ultimately, they, you know, they they achieve some pretty significant things. Um, one of the, if, if I may just interject, yeah. one of the bizarre things is... The number of people who, it turns out, you know, couldn't really imagine what nuclear war meant unless they were shown, in effect, a picture of it. I learned of a general on Castro's staff who said that the Cuban Missile Crisis had not been real to him until he saw the movie. Mm. And I think for a lot of people, talking about Armageddon and nuclear weapons and big bangs and so forth, it, these are abstractions. Somebody said one picture is worth a thousand words. And I think that Ronald Reagan and that Cuban general simply couldn't imagine it until somebody showed them what it was or a version of what it was. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and and for people who haven't seen the film, and we don't have to spend too much time recounting, you know, the very there are there are there are parts of it that are genuinely terrifying, that are are, are gruesome. Um, you vividly see the explosions going off. Um, you know, you see people being vaporized. They kind of turn into skeletons on on the end the camera. the The fallout is awful. You see people with radiation poisoning. You see their hair falling out. It's scenes of devastation. I mean, it's a truly vivid rendering of what it might look like. There's a scene, though, in the movie that for me is still the one that I think encapsulates so much of the horror and the despair of it. And I and I, I genuinely can't watch the scene without starting to cry. It's the scene uh, with B.B. Besh, the terrific actor who plays um, the wife uh, 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 of one of the characters that so they live on a farm and they're getting ready for her daughter's wedding the next day. And her husband realizing that a war is about to start is packing the cellar with canned food and getting water down there. And she's kind of going about her business and she's making food for the wedding and she's making the beds and she's just refuses to acknowledge what's happening. And he comes into the bedroom and says, you have to go down with me to the cellar. Now there's a war about to start. And he goes over and he tries to pull her away and she, lashes out at him and he grabs her around the arms and restrains her and she just wails with such despair when she realizes that it's it's going to happen and he has to drag her down the stairs and it's just it's so horrifying um talk talk about that scene talk about that scene yeah it's a scene that makes me cry where i you know sort of forget my involvement that i'm watching a movie she was a marvelous actress, B.B. Besh. She's also in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Yeah. 
She's great. She plays Carol. Yeah, she's great in that. That's where I discovered, you know, just how marvelous she was. And but she's even more marvelous than that, because when we filmed the scene that so affected you, the film lab spoiled it. Mm. Um, it, it was such a gift what she had done. Uh, and I had to look her in the face and say, "Bibi, we have to we have to shoot the whole thing again. Oh, my God. And I saw the look on her face because actors are in the business and it's it's not an easy business despite the good pay of going places in their own souls and dredging up feelings that the rest of us would prefer not to have to deal with at all and they have to they have to bring it up if they're on stage they're bringing it up nightly and she had to go and do this thing again and she did it so the scene that we see is the second take yes how much time did she take between did she need time to to recollect herself no 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 it was it was a day or so later okay because in those days film had to be processed oh so you didn't know right away yeah so whether that helped or hindered her getting to that place is not for me to say, and and alas, uh, she died young, Bibi. So uh, I, there's no consulting her on the subject. Yeah, I'm curious did, when she when you told her she'd have to do it again. I mean, did she? She's clearly just such a pro. Did she just say, "Okay, let's do it"? And and was it the same as the first take? The short answer to that is I can't remember. We're mm. talking about events that are over 30 years old. Yeah. And while I I generally am accounted somebody who has a very good memory, I've also learned that some of my memories are wrong. Mm. Um, I, I mentioned to you uh, before this broadcast that <clears throat> there was a television documentary, brand new television documentary, about the making of the day after called mm -hmm. Television Event by a documentary filmmaker named Jeff Daniels. Not the actor, but Jeff Daniels, the documentary filmmaker. Right. <clears throat> and watching that film, and he did a tremendous amount of research and got some great on-camera footage, uh, I was forced to realize that some of my earlier recollections of events were incorrect. And this also happened when people said to me, you know, did you work with Gene Roddenberry? And I said, no, not really. I think I met him a couple of times. But then I was shown a sort of fairly substantial uh, correspondence between Gene Roddenberry and myself huh. with a lot of memos and memoranda, uh, you know, about how much he hated my scripts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I completely blocked it that I maybe that's why. Yeah. Um, did you have fun making this film? I mean, a movie set is a very stressful environment, but it's a place where you have you can be having a lot of fun and you're creating. Um, what was it like day to day trying to make this movie? Again, my memory is probably faulty mm. uh, or at least possibly faulty. <clears throat> I don't remember it as being particularly fun. Mm. 
I know that the actors, some of the actors had uh, nightmares. Steve mm. Gutenberg had nightmares. We used to call them nukemares. Mm. And I know that a certain black humor sometimes was uh, called into play in order to get us through stuff. Like a, somebody said, I can't remember who said it. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a nuclear war while we were actually filming and we would get some incredible footage? It was that kind of, you know, yeah. goofing around. But the rest of the time, uh, I was, you have to have the height of a rhinoceros and the endurance of a marathon runner to direct the movie mm -hmm. because there's no, there's no downtime. Yeah. Even, even on a, on a happy movie, there's mm -hmm. no downtime. You're worried about weather. You're worried about money. You're worried about stars. You're, you're worried about a lot of things and you have to navigate and, and, and hold all the, the puppet strings in your hand. And this movie just you know, cite an example. I had never directed a television movie, and my wonderful producer, Bob Papazian, who had made a million of them, mm. said to me one morning before we ever rolled a camera, uh, "We have to go to a meeting this morning." And I said, uh, "Okay, what what what's the meeting?" And he says, "It's uh, standards and practices." And I said, "What is that?" And so he described what standards and practices, these are people who go through the script with you, they work for ABC, and they tell you what you can and can't film, what you can't show, what you can't say. And I said, so this is the censor. We're talking yeah. about going to see a censor. And he said, well, yes, it's called standards and practice. I said, never mind what it's called. <laughs> I think standards <laughs> and practice is better. Yeah. We're, we're going to see standards and practices. And I, we're driving down Pico Boulevard, heading west toward ABC Circle Films. And I'm not the fastest thinker in the world, but I said, gee, Bob, if you were going to censor the script, shouldn't you have censored it before I agreed to film it? It kind of seems bait and switchy to... <laughs> You know, I said yes, and now you say, but it's not going to be this. It's going to be whatever they say. And he said, well, this is the way it's always done. So we, you know, drove another couple of blocks. And I said, Bob, because still here, Nick. I said, I don't think I can be bound by anything that happens in this meeting, because this is the script that I agreed to film. And... Uh, he said, well, he could have nervous laugh. Anyway, we go into this meeting with a man and a woman who are the standards and practices people. And Bob has his script out and he's got a pen and a notepad. And they begin by saying, um, now on page two, where the, the patient in the hospital <laughs> refers to his doctor as Tojo, um, we, we can't have that. Mm. can't say that and i and and i'm you know sitting there i say how come and they said because we will not knowingly uh insult a portion of our viewing audience in this mm. case you know japanese japanese americans and i said but but didn't you make a movie called roots mm -hmm. and and didn't you use the n-word throughout the movie mm. and they said Yes, but that was in context. 
I said, in context, what does that mean? Does that mean it was about N-word people? And they just looked at me and they said, it's out. Mm. And, and, and it went like that. You know, they, they, and they said, ah, this, this scene about the diaphragm, that the girl has a diaphragm. We can't have that. I said, why not? They said, because we will not appear to endorse birth control. Mm. And I said, but didn't you make a movie about teenage pregnancy? Wasn't that? I said, oh, don't, don't tell me. It was in context. Mm. Um, I said, you know, the word diaphragm is, is never mentioned. You never see it. Um, and later, in fact, the young lady regrets having used it. So that's hardly an endorsement. Uh, they said it's out. So I said nothing through all of this. After that, I just shut my mouth. And then I went out and shot everything that's in the movie. It was in the script. Right. So it's like 10 days in, and we're watching dailies at the motel where we were all living in Lawrence, Kansas. And Bob taps me on the shoulder and they said, phone call for you, ABC. And so this is what it was like making the movie. So I go down and answer the phone and there's an executive on the other line who's going, Nick, Nick, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, you're shooting all this stuff and it's, it's, it can't be in the movie. You, you, you agreed. I said, no, I didn't. I didn't agree to anything. Um, I accept to shoot the script that you offered me. And the script that we, you know, that we, what you offered me is what I'm shooting. I said, but let me make this easy for you. Fire me. <laughs> he goes, what? I said, fire me. We're only 10 days out. You can reshoot. I mean, I'll leave. Gane Rescher, my cinematographer from Star Trek II, he'll leave because he didn't want to do it. I had to say, I think this is where we find out who you really are to get him to do it. <laughs> Jason Robards will, you know, probably walk, but you can replace him. You can, he goes, I'll get back to you. So I go back, you know, and I, I did I stop to throw up? I don't know. Mm hmm. Um, and then the next day we're at a farmhouse and they call again. And this time there's like 10 of them on speakerphone. Nick, Nick, it's your movie. You shoot it the way you're shooting it. But as an officer of the corporation, I am fiduciarily bound to tell you that none of that stuff can be in the movie. I said, fine, you told me. Mm hmm. And then at the end, it's all in. Yeah. Because it was, you know, it, it looks so absurd to be worrying about the diaphragm in the middle of World War III. Um, so, you know, all their objections and censors, you know, that kind of stuff went bye-bye. There was other stuff that didn't go bye-bye that was deemed to be too graphic or too violent or too disturbing. Um, and the, they they snipped and tucked. Um, but under the making a movie like that when the people you're making it for don't have your back to begin with and by the way you know one of the things i learned watching that television event documentary is that people i thought were my friends were my enemies mm. and people i thought were my enemies turned out to be my friends i had no idea that brandon stoddard who made the movie president of abc circle films whom I regarded as my nemesis, 
was actually threatening to resign if ABC didn't make this movie, didn't release it. Wow. That he was suffering death threats. I mean, you saw the documentary, yep. so you know what I'm talking about. Yep. He's not alive for me to apologize. Mm. And I, I am sorry about that and will be till my dying day. It sounds like so much of the story of this film is, you know, it's obviously a controversial film is going to have these kinds of moments of push and pull. It's a huge network, though, that is putting on this movie. And I have to say, even looking back on it today, it is kind of amazing that ABC put this film on the air in prime time. I mean, it is a, you know, you say some things are cut out of it, but I mean, it's a, it is a shocking film. I mean, it is a deeply, viscerally disturbing film. You, I lost my perspective as the filmmaker. I was just mm -hmm. watching sure. it. Thinking, yeah. Oh my God, I don't know if I can, you know, make it through this. This is too upsetting. And of course, as of, you know, today, now, it's more upsetting than it ever was because things haven't gotten better since 1983. They've palpably gotten worse. There's a, a madman in Russia with his finger on the button. Did you ever imagine you'd be contemplating this scenario again where we could be looking at the use of a nuclear weapon? You know, I don't think I gave it much thought. I think I was like everybody else. And I thought, well, I gave it the office, um, you know, and and when when Reagan and, and Gorbachev signed their their treaty, I thought this is the most worthwhile thing I ever have gotten to do with my life thus far anyway and uh you know then donald trump our fearless leader uh canceled that treaty the way he cancels all treaties um so now it's it's all sort of happening again mm -hmm. it seems like it's i mean it's another reason why i wanted to talk to you about this film is because i think that it might be time for people to look at this movie again and remind I get, ourselves. I get letters from from scientists and people at least once a week and have gotten these letters and emails and whatever for years, many years. Please remake the movie. Oh, wow. Donald Trump needs to see the movie. Uh, on and on and on. Please make a new version. And by the way, I've tried. Uh, I, I've collaborated with Frank Spotnitz my partner on Medici's Masters of Florence, and he did The Man in the High Castle. And we went to all the streamers, went to Amazon and, and Netflix and all of them. No one wants to tackle another day after any more than they did the first time. This was all about Brandon Stoddard. Brandon Stoddard made that movie happen in the teeth of all kinds of corporate uh, rejection, defiance, objections. It was that was one guy's guts. It's it's kind of surprising to me, and maybe it shouldn't be, that that people wouldn't want to make it again because you know, we've seen movies like The Day After Tomorrow, right, which contemplates climate change disasters and and, and you know, and people are I don't want to say people, audiences are titillated by it, but like disaster movies, as you said, can can be fun. What is it about this subject that makes people in the film industry so resistant to revisiting it, particularly when it, it seems more relevant now than it than it has in a long time, certainly since the end of the Cold War? Well, that brings me back to my opening statement. 
which is that since 1945, the human race's capacity to destroy itself is such a terrifying prospect that presenting it certainly in a naked form, unadorned by movie stars or spectacular effects or a catchy theme song or anything that lets you off the hook and, and eat the popcorn um, is what people will resort to. And the day after as a movie and some of those other movies that I've told you about that are, that are just as horrifying, if not more so, they don't let you off the hook. There is no hope. You got to give them hope. There is no hope if this happens. There's no hope. And we're, we've been raised on over 100 years of Hollywood endings. Mm -hmm. And this is not a Hollywood ending. Nobody rides off into the sunset. They don't kiss. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, and it is a it is a bleak ending. Uh, the the final shot of the movie, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is Jason Robards sitting in the middle of the ash heap that used to be his house. Uh, yes, right, right. Um, I, I do want to talk about some of your other films too. I mean, you've made some truly some of my most, actually most favorite films. I mean, I love Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. I loved seeing that movie in the theater. I loved Ricardo Montalban. I used to watch Fantasy Island as a kid and seeing him as a villain was just, it was such great fun. Time After Time is an is a incredibly imaginative, inventive film about Jack the Ripper stealing H.G. Wells's time machine and stalking San Francisco in the 1970s. Um, you know, it, it, are, there, are there certain kinds of movies that you were just drawn to making? Because you've done a lot in the Star Trek universe, but you've done a lot of varied work. I mean, in the day after, I mean, obviously kind of stands apart from much of it. So what were there stories you always wanted to tell as a filmmaker, or did you just kind of find your way in the business and, and end up making the movies that you did? Well, it's an interesting question and calls for, you know, a certain amount of sort of introspection. We're putting you back on the couch again here. I apologize. <laughs> um, ever since on my website, I'm not described as a novelist. I'm not described as a director or a filmmaker. I'm described, self-described as a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And ever since I was a kid, I have been in love with stories once upon a time and I'm hooked. It's very difficult for me to read anything or for that matter, watch anything that doesn't have that essential storytelling quality narrative. I have never, to my knowledge, cared much whether it was a funny story or a sad story, or a science fiction story, or a sex story, or a comical, tragical, pastoral history. It doesn't matter. I just want it to be a good story. Mm -hmm. And somebody said to me, well, what's your definition of a good story? And the best answer I could come up with was, once you've heard it, you understand why I wanted to tell it. That, that's the best I can do. And so whether I'm adapting Philip Roth, which I've done twice, or working on Fatal Attraction, or 
whatever it was that I was contributing to in whole or in part, directing it or writing it, or uh, I like Sherlock Holmes stories. Um, I like stories with strong narrative uh, possibilities, I think. But they could they could be time after time, for example, and an artist I should interject is is not the best judge of his own work. An artist loses all proprietary authority when the thing is finished. But, you know, as I see it, time after time is more or less five movies going on simultaneously. It's science fiction. It's a comedy. It's a romance. Mm -hmm. It's a thriller. And it's also a kind of mordant social commentary. Yeah. It's all those five things are, are going on, but they're sort of seamlessly um, implied and uh, worked by the, by the premise. And the premise was not mine. It was somebody else's mm -hmm. and named Carl Alexander. You know, it reminds me too that, I mean, in, you know, one of the things that makes Star Trek two so good, I mean, even if you're not a Star Trek fan, is, I mean, basically the movie, it's it's Moby Dick. I mean, Kirk is Khan's white whale. Kirk, Khan is literally saying lines, I think, from the Herman Melville novel, if I'm not mistaken. He's alluding to it. I didn't appreciate that as a young person. But when you look back on that as a film, I mean, one of the reasons it works so well is it's just a great story. It's about this man who is obsessed with revenge. And he is going to go to the edge of the galaxy, in this case, to have his revenge. He will have it, and he's driven by it, and it kills himself and everyone around him. I mean, there's a timelessness to that story, even though it's kind of like it's embedded in this franchise that is is, is bigger. But something about that movie, for me, and I've seen most of the Star Trek films, was singular because it just really focused on the relationship between these two people. And that seemed to me like it carried it through. I mean, in addition to the fact that I thought Ricardo Montalban is just such a, a presence in the movie and he's great as a villain. Um, but it really is a story. I mean, you really paid attention to that story, it seems to me. Well, again, I think there are several strands and, and that is the principal strand. It's also about people growing old. Mm. It's, it's about Kirk growing old. It's about yeah. <laughs> um, and it's also about friendship. It's also it's about in, in addition to being about enmity. Again, this is just, you know, one person's opinion. In addition to being about the enmity between Kirk and Khan, it's also about the friendship between Kirk and Spock. Yep. It's also about, you know, what what sort of sacrifice. Um, so, yes, it's about friendship, enmity, old age, and death. It's about yeah. death. And famously, it's the movie where Spock dies before he's, you know, brought back to life in, in part three. Um, and there's another theme that's running through your work, and at the risk of suddenly psychoanalyzing you, I wonder what you think about this. But, you know, Star Trek II has at the center this device where it's the Genesis Project, where they can make planets. And, of course, everyone covets this power. Uh, uh, you know, you've made a movie the day after about the end of life on a planet. Um, Star Trek IV, which I think you were involved in the writing of, yes. is the, it's the one where they go back in time to find the humpback whales so they can come back and talk to this alien probe that is now threatening to destroy the earth and they don't know how to talk to it, but it speaks humpback whale, apparently. There's kind of like a creation of worlds, end of worlds theme that's running through some of these movies. I don't know if it's just accidental or is that something that you were also drawn to as a storyteller? 
you know, I've been asked a lot of questions in my time. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever you know, uh, figured this. I, I Again, my answer is going to be inevitably sort of superficial, but mm. I would have to say, number one, I didn't invent the story of time after time. Mm -hmm. As I said, a man named Carl Alexander. I did not invent the story of the humpback whales, which was mm -hmm. concocted by Leonard Nimoy and the producer, Harf Bennett. That was their story. Um, but to use your phrase, <clears throat> I was certainly drawn to that material. I, I think in thinking about the stories that appealed to me, they are stories that I can locate in the real world. I'm not interested in superheroes. I'm not interested in comics, uh, comic book heroes and, and, you know, guys with capes and who have superpowers. I'm interested in people trying to figure shit out. Mm -hmm. um, and the more I can locate it, in a world that is familiar to me, and that's not a Zen cast world, I have to add, um, the happier I, I, I am. So if I'm writing Star Trek or, or Philip Roth, they're the same in the sense that I'm looking for what is real. And what is real is sometimes not funny or not pleasant. Sometimes it's extremely funny. You just have to sort of follow the implications of certain things. If you have a guy from 1893 wandering around San Francisco in 1979, a lot of things will be funny. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a miniskirt will be funny. Um, But I, I have to be able to locate it on planet Earth, no matter how far away in whatever you know future time it's supposed to be. I still got to recognize it. One of the interesting things that I thought about works of art <clears throat> is that human beings, humanity, has not changed since pretty much the dawn of the species. We still solve all our problems the same way. Mm. Sooner or later, somebody picks up a rock, whether it's the rock is at the other end of a button. We, we, we fall in love, we get rich, we get poor, we, we make war, whatever we do. Nothing has changed except technology. And the proof of this is art. You can look at Egyptian wall paintings, you can watch a production of Hamlet. Nothing has changed. You can read Sherlock Holmes. Nothing has changed. Only the clothes and the technology. So what story do you want to tell next? Well, I'm working on another home story. I'm working on a television series set in the post-war French Riviera with mm -hmm. a lot of rich people who are not quite sure what to do with themselves. Um, 
I've been working on a Chinese science fiction story uh, that very much intrigues me about uh, an island where the people spend their lives recycling electronic waste. Oh, wow. Um, this is this a movie that would be made in China or, or for, uh, or just are speaking Chinese characters or? Well, it was written by a Chinese author. Okay. Uh, and where we wind up setting it and what we do with it, you know, what was that? Um, what was that? <clears throat> There's a funny exchange in Sunset Boulevard where Joe Gillis, who's played by William Holden, um, describes a, a baseball picture that he wrote. He said, but by the time it was finished, you'd never know because it all took place on a submarine. Uh, <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> something something like that. So I I don't know. You know, it always begins by saying, you know, we love your script. We love your book. We don't want to change a line of it, you know. Right, right, right. Um, it sounds like it sounds like the process of making movies, no matter how much success you may have had and how long you've been doing it. It's it, it's still it's fighting those same fights, right? And we love your script, but there's just a couple things differently we might want to do. It's a, Scorsese. I just read somewhere Scorsese <laughs> saying, "We love your script. We want to make your movie." Oh, so one thing: could you do it with your hand tied behind your back? Just that one thing. <laughs> and he he goes, "Well, uh, okay, I'll try." And they go, "Great, we're going." Because oh, one more thing. Could you do it with a patch over your right eye? Just if you could do that. Um, and, and it's like you have to sort of make it in spite of all these yeah. obstacles. Right, right. Well, I think that's also part of like with the, the creative tension, isn't it? And that's what make, often makes it good. It is our tradition here on the podcast for our last question, which is this going to be our last question on chatter, is that I reach into the chatterbox and I'm going to remove a previously written question at random. Uh, for you. This is kind of like our version of the Proust questionnaire in Vanity Fair, I guess. There's a lot of themes of analysis going on here. All right, so I'm going to reach in here and... All right, this is actually a very appropriate question for you, given the, th the discussions that we've been having. If you could convince the president to take one discrete action today related to national security and define national security as broadly as you want, what would it be? If you could step into Joe Biden's office and say, this is the one piece of advice, the thing I wish you would do to make the world safer, what would it be? I don't think I can properly answer that question in the time space that I'm being allotted. <laughs> As I have contemplated the unfolding beginning of World War III in the Ukraine, I keep looking for, you know, what some people have called the exit ramp. Mm. And speaking for myself, I haven't found it. Yeah. The only piece of advice that I would give President Biden is please don't shoot yourself in the foot by going off script, because the thing that I I find that gets him into trouble is when he gives personal opinions that are confused with policy. Um, and I, I don't think he serves himself well or any of the rest of us by um, promulgating that confusion. There's enough internal dissent in this country um, with sort of the rise of, of populism or fascism or whatever you want to call it on the one hand, than to have 
you know, a guy that I, I think is, you know, basically got his marbles and his heart in the right place, but he does make mistakes. The withdrawal from Afghanistan was appalling. Uh, and I, I wish that he'd uh, get a little better organized. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially when the stakes in this war are uh, as high as they may be. Yeah, there can't, there can't be mistakes. And the other side has already, you know, made a blunder of such colossal proportions yeah. that we I don't think we can make any on our side. I don't we can afford them. Yeah. You know, we've got young people serving on both sides, you know, with, you know, their fingers on a lot of weapons. Well, we're closer to the day after than we've been, sadly, scarily in a long time. Uh, But Nick Meyer, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for making that film. Uh, I know how hard it was. And you and you've given us some insight into the the battles that you had to fight. Um, it's an important piece of work, and it changed people's minds. It really did, and it had a big effect on me. And I know a lot of people. So, thank you for making it, and thank you for coming on and talking to us about it. I was uh, so pleased to be asked, and thank you. The questions were great. That was chatter a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.